0: the power of their data. to Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see.
1: And welcome to it. Thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast. Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. And really special guests, as we always say, Jeff, but we really mean it every time because this is a uh, former Oriole all-star closer uh, who had a, who's had a fascinating professional baseball career, saved 50 games in a season twice, and was a big part of some really special Orioles teams talking about the big right-hander, the big sinker baller, Jim Johnson
2: kind of the leader of I guess he might call it the the offensive line that was the Orioles bullpen a group that had an incredible 2012 season and and Johnson individually he was an all-star that year he won the Aids relief award he surpassed Randy Myers for most saves by an Orioles uh, closer in in a single season but it was that group as a whole as he talked to us about in that podcast which made it such an effective unit I mean how many times did you get into the seventh inning and you realized it was over when you would see the O'Day and Mattis and Johnson. And then you had the, the Pedro Stropes and the Luis Ayala, who had a great 2012 season that, that group collectively did a lot for the Orioles and, and helped support what was a really good offense that year. And was a overall a unit that was a big part of that team's success.
1: And someone I know that Buck Showalter just adored, just adored, I remember Buck saying he saw him pitch a rehab game uh, before he was the Orioles' closer and, and how he handled himself going back to a rehab game in Double A buoy. But here, here's a guy who, and Jim's going to talk about this coming up, earned his way to the big leagues. I mean, he was given nothing uh, by the Orioles' front office. He had to go every step of the way, and sometimes he had to go there twice. Uh, it's stuff you don't see anymore for a guy who's actually, at the time, one of the Orioles' top pitching prospects in those days as a starter, but won the Jim Palmer Award for the team's best minor league pitcher, Uh, He was, you know, fairly highly touted, at least by the Orioles' organizational standards. Uh, Had a really good career before they became competitive. And kind of lost in some really, you know, bad teams and bad bullpens. So he kind of is one of those guys, Jeff, who saw how bad it was, played for a bunch of different managers, and then saw what it could be and what it was. And I often talk about that 2012 team, but specific to those two home games, it was – you know, I don't want to sound corny about a rebirth of baseball. It never goes away in Baltimore, but it's the passing of a baton in many ways. If you kind of fell asleep between 1997 and 2012, and we all kind of uh, said, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like, and that's, that's how it felt. And the crowd, the generational aspects of that for me were, were very special. I remember game one over a two-hour rain delay. I'm doing radio coverage live on the Orioles' network. Uh, which to me personally, I'll just say it was a big deal. I mean, on, uh, on, on the Orioles radio network doing rain delay coverage, you know, Joe Angel and Fred Manfred say, take a kid. And, and off I went for two hours talking to myself. And, and I remember saying on, on the radio, and I think there's a tweet out there somewhere to prove it, I also said it there where, you know, we've waited 14 years. What's another few hours among friends? And no one left the ballpark. It was a late night, two late nights. The energy was through the roof. Uh, and then obviously you felt they had to get one home win. In this, in this marvelous season, and they got it in game two, and it was Jim Johnson nailing down a one-run uh, victory. And to strike out Alex Rodriguez to do it, it, it was something. And to
2: do it the night after he gave up the five yeah. runs in what was a tie game. He needed that, and the Orioles needed that. And like you pointed out, the Orioles had to win one of those games, not only to just give themselves a chance going to New York, but also to do it for the fans that had waited so long. And as we talked about in a previous podcast, it was in September that you started to get a sense this year might be different than some of those other 14 stinkers where it didn't go particularly well. And Johnson talking about how he got on the mound and the mound was actually shaking. It, it felt like it was was moving when he was out there, uh, just kind of a, a time of, of, you know, where baseball was suddenly meaningful again in Baltimore and where people could come out to the ballpark and, and pack it like, you know, it was being packed in the in the mid-90s where you had those great teams. And it was a special time. Johnson was a, a really key part of it. And that bullpen, which I don't think they quite get the credit they always deserve for for the job that they did. It was just a, a unit that you kind of just expected that they would go out there and then they would get it done. And, and they wouldn't make a whole lot of mistakes and they wouldn't blow a whole lot of opportunities. but I'm glad we had Jim Johnson on because sometimes I I feel like how good that bullpen was and how many of the, not only, you know, what Jim Johnson did, but, you know, some of those ancillary pieces that were also critical uh, to that group's success. Um, I I like that we covered that unit and he talked about the group as a whole on this particular podcast and, and talked about how critical they were to that 2012 season happening.
1: And I think he does somewhat get lost in the shuffle because of the uh, three Britain seasons after Johnson was traded uh, to Oakland. He kind of uh, gets lost in the shuffle, I think. Plus, there were so many key bullpen pieces. But listen, it's hard to save 50 games in a season and to do it in back-to-back years. Um, And every game seemed to be important in those two years in 12 and 13. I mean, they were competing to the final week of the season in 2013. That 2013 team, in some ways, wasn't better, obviously. They won 85 games. but uh they they had some just absolute stars i think their entire infield was in the all-star game uh they were just uh you know they, they could they could be a wrecking ball that you was a different feeling than 2012 and you know they needed a good closer nail things down they got that yeah and can you also talk about the fact that this is a fifth round pick out of a new york
2: high school yeah you don't, you don't see, see that. very you don't see it very often nowadays and it's hard for a player like that coming out of a high school in, in the Northeast where you don't play a whole lot of baseball during the springtime. And then he goes into the Orioles minor league system and he's in rookie ball for three years. How many of those guys go on to reach the major league? Not a whole lot. And how many of those guys, once they reach the major leagues, have a meaningful career, not a whole lot. So, Johnson defied the odds in that way, and and that's what I, I think makes his his journey all that that more special. That you know he passes Randy Myers under the all time great relievers in in Orioles history for saves. And this is a guy that probably uh, and he talked about it in the podcast at the very end. Uh, second year where he's in Bluefield, he's like, "What am I doing here?" And if and he's coming out of spring training, thinking if I don't make a full season team, like I'm done. And that that was also a pretty pretty telling part of the podcast because when you see three years in rookie ball, you're like. Hmm. High school or not, how did this happen?
1: Yeah. And you know Jim Johnson is from Johnson City, New York. Isn't that funny? Big guy, 6'6, <laughs> six, six, 250. Uh, if you didn't see him in person, I mean, really an imposing guy, but let's get to it. Jim Johnson on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Light. All right. Joining us right now on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Light, is former Orioles All Star closer and someone who pitched. 13 big league seasons, eight of those with the Baltimore Orioles, the team that drafted him. Former Oriole closer Jim Johnson is with us. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for, uh, you know, having me on. And uh, I know uh, everybody's uh, starving for some sports right now. So i glad to join. Well, it's great to see you.
1: Great to talk with you. Uh, you saved 101 games in two really fun seasons in Baltimore. And, Obviously, you were an established uh, reliever before that point. But before we get rolling on kind of your career in the Orioles, I want to talk about the 2012 ALDS. Uh, of course, you save it and close it out in game two. And I remember that night well. I, and there's a video of this. Craig Sager, the late legendary sideline reporter for Turner Sports, uh, held up one of those uh, machines that measures the volume uh, of the crowd noise. And he said it's the loudest venue they've ever broadcasted in uh, tell us about the crowd those two nights in Baltimore against the Yankees
3: yeah I think uh, I mean well the first night um, you know that was uh that was incredible that we had uh, you know the first playoff game like you said in in so many years and you know you saw how starved the fan base was and they I mean they packed the house um, you know unfortunately uh, it wasn't one of my better games and we let that one get away. So game two, um, you know, I kind of, kind of wanted to prove a point that, you know, Hey, we, we, we went through a lot that year as a team and a lot of people, um, a lot of people weren't really buying into the fact that we were going to put up a fight in the playoffs. I think a lot of people kind of just thought that, all right, you know, they, it was a feel good story for the season and that, um oh yeah they're gonna play the Yankees and they're just gonna you know just bounce out real quick and um I I think uh winning that game two at home um I I do remember specifically as I was warming up for game two um the, the the crowd game two I felt like was even louder than game one when I came in the game and I think it was you know, game game one, I came in. It was a tied game. Game two, I came in. We were up by, I think, one. And I remember getting on the mound, and before I was even throwing the pitch, I could actually feel the vibrations of the stadium on the mound. So I, I distinctly remember that. After that, things kind of get a little blurry, you know, kind of game <laughs> fog. But um, it was uh, it was definitely, um, you know, a moment a moment that I uh, really don't ever forget.
2: After game one, how long did it take before you were able to put it behind you and quickly shift your focus to game two? Oh,
3: I mean, I was – it bothered me. Um, until I got home, I I kind of had a um, – I guess it was kind of a good uh, technique of once I left the clubhouse, like as soon as I walked out the door, whatever happened, happened. You know, I knew I left it out on the field, so – you know, I can. I would never get upset with myself. I would. I would get frustrated that I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do in the game. Sometimes, you know, so then that that's how things happen. But yeah, uh, as soon as I walked out the door of the clubhouse at the end of the game, uh, I kind of left everything there, and um, you know, I was able to forget about it and then come in fresh the next day.
1: So there's obviously no doubt if the Orioles have a ninth inning lead, you're going to get the ball in that ninth inning. You have to go through. Jeter, Ichiro, and Alex Rodriguez to close out game two. At that time, A-Rod is a true villain of baseball. I mean, and he's struggling in the playoffs. It's kind of his M.O., especially at that time. But you get him. If I recall correctly, you're obviously going with your pitch, the sinker, almost the whole way. And you strike him out. And I think at that moment, it's one of the loudest ballparks or venues I've ever, I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, can you recall that at-bat against Rodriguez at
3: all? Um. I I remember I couldn't I couldn't remember who the second hitter was. I always know it seemed like every single game I played against the Yankees, it was always I always had to face Jeter every single time and uh he knew what I was going to do and it was just a matter of if he got a single or if he got out, you know, it was just so um and I ha- I handled him well, so I didn't mind seeing Jeter, Cano and Ichiro um always gave me fits. Um, so I didn't, I couldn't remember who the second hitter was, but you said it was Ichiro that year. Um, and then Alex, uh, I do remember, um, I gave him a steady diet. I would, I would, I I'd like to work him in and out. Um, and, and Weeters and I always like to, um, try to really focus on making him conscious that I was going to go inside, but not just for, not just for a swing, or not, not for just like pushing them off the plate, but I was actually showing him that I would pitch for a strike on the inner, inner part of the plate. And if I could do that, um, it gave me a little bit more options of what I could do throughout the at bat. So um, I know that during the playoffs, um, the ball out of my hand would definitely come out a lot different than during the regular season. Um, And a sinker, when a, when a sinker comes out, you know, you don't really want it to ride true like a four seamer and just the adrenaline would take over. And so some of the pitches would flatten out on me. Um, And so I do remember um, pitching inside um, and I, I wanted to throw strikes in there because Alex, when, you know, he was going good, he, he would, he would stay inside out the ball. So, anything that didn't finish inside, he could do some serious damage on, so you had to it had to do that. I do remember last pitch was was probably one of the better pitches I threw on the outside corner. I don't remember if he swung or check swung or whatever it was, but I don't know. it kind of blacked out after that and uh um, he swung for the record he did swing okay, I don't know it was either he swung or he half swung it was one of the two so but uh. Yeah, and then after that, was kind of blurry. It was really loud, so I I don't – it was kind of like a black zone there.
2: What was it like watching uh, Mattis and O'Day before that? Because prior to you coming in, uh, Mattis got in a spot where intentionally walks the potential go-ahead run, puts him on base, throws a wild pitch. You get runners at second and third. Do you remember anything about that and, and maybe that decision
3: and how it ended up working out? Um. So, a lot of like the in-game stuff, I it's really hard to recall. Um, it's it's funny how like your brain kind of picks and chooses like certain events to remember. Um, I do remember there was a a strategy issue where we ended up intentionally walking somebody, and so that 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 would have been it. And I remember like thinking through it, and I'm like, I always just referred. I was like, well, Buck knows what he's doing, you know, he's and we're going to, we're going to, whether it's the right or wrong decision, we're going with it. So, um, and how it plays out, you know, and, you know, Buck always, at, when we got to that point in the season, he always would remind us, he's like, you know, once you get to the playoffs, it's a coin flip. I mean, you battle, you battle 162 games. I mean, things happen it's a coin flip. So there's never really a right or wrong decision. Um, I, I think he might've been playing off of his gut and also knowing, um knowing the guys that he had to work with. Um, but I do, I mean, O'Day that year was so solid that, um, and if he fought, was following Mattis, he probably, did, did O'Day follow Mattis in that O'Day, situation?
2: O'Day came in first, and then Mattis came in right after.
3: Okay. So, I mean, there was probably, you know, we had already used, I mean, O'Day was, was basically our second closer that year, um, you know, The old term would have been a stopper, I guess. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, he would stop any momentum. And, um, you know, at that point, I probably wasn't paying too much attention to – I was trying to stay in my own little bubble rather than try to play the guessing game of what's going on. But I'm sure I was watching, but I probably wasn't – I mean, something didn't stick. But sounds sounds familiar.
1: Tell me about that 2012 bullpen. I mean, the team was just an incredible group. Uh, to win 93 games, and that sub-500 drought, which you knew all too well, the, the losing drought, the playoff drought, all of it kind of going away. But the bullpen was the hallmark of yeah. that team, and the team played for that bullpen to have, as you mentioned, Darren O'Day, you know, Brian Mattis finding a niche late in the year, uh, obviously what you were doing the back end. But guys like Pedro Strop or yeah. the veteran Luis Ayala, people forget, had a, had a great year. And there were a lot of other guys who would – like Troy Patton, you know, how to run that year. Tell me about that group collectively and how much the club leaned on it.
3: Yeah, um, you know, it was kind of a reflection of the type of team that we were, um, you know, and I always reference, you know, that team that year. Um, that was the one year where I felt like we had, well, I mean, in September, we even had more than 25, but, you know, you use the term of 25 guys. I mean, that was, it was an act, an, an absolutely cohesive 25 man unit. And, and I know that year, I, I mean, if, if I remember correctly, we had tons of transactions, <clears throat> but every 25 guys, you know, that, that turned into obviously, you know, 30 something guys probably throughout the course of the season. Um, all those guys were pulling the same, same way, you know, um, the same direction of that, of that rope. And um it was it was incredible to watch how how that unit together outperformed probably our our abilities just because of how well we played as a group um and so yeah i mean it seemed like every game we would either win by one or two or we'd get we'd lose by like six or seven i mean it was it was uh you know so it was it was how things lined up and it it was a fun it was a fun group uh of guys to play with for for sure um and and you know you mentioned some of the guys involved in that bullpen. I think uh, I'm trying to think of who else was in that because I sometimes I get 12 and 13 mixed up. <laughs> so, um, well, guys, guys that,
1: like Britton and Hunter and and were there Arietta to some extent. You know, guys yeah. who made starts at one point of the season, became relievers later in the year. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, the core group. You know, as you mentioned yourself. I, I,
3: yeah, I remember it was you know Strope and O'Day were were rock solid the whole year, um, you know. And I think I think you mentioned you know Madison Troy Patton. I mean, those were two lefties that that played a big role for us, um, you know. Because there were, were times where we needed that big left-handed out. And in the East, there, it always seemed you know you know with you playing the Red Sox, you have Ortiz and uh, a couple other guys, and the Yankees especially um, the lefties that they had um throughout their lineup to keep to keep them off of us um on the backside.
2: For O'Day, you called him the stopper, but what did he kind of mean as as one of the the leaders of that group um mm-hmm. to, to kind of get everybody into a into a good headspace when you, you went out to the bullpen that you were going to be able to to perform and and pick up outs at the end of games?
3: Yeah. Well Darren you know, outside of outside of what he brought as a pitcher um, on the field, you know, he he was pro- He was our most seasoned with playoff experience um, in that bullpen at the time. So he was able to help guys, you know, understand you know how things are going to go, and preparing them for um, the playoff atmosphere, um, and and not just the playoffs themselves, but that last stretch of the season and how to finish you know uh the right you know and focus on the right things um going into the playoffs and you know he was instrumental in a lot of a lot of aspects helping me out you know obviously i had a up and down playoff short series there but um you know there was a lot to learn from that going through it and uh but darren darren was instrumental in helping everybody out trying to you know explain you know how things are going to go you know you you normally might pitch you know if you normally pitch in the like Darren would usually pitch around the seventh you know but sometimes you know if if a situation came up in the fifth you know he might be in the game you know and and it's a it's a different animal because you only you only get that short window to to move on obviously before the
1: division series against the Yankees uh, there's the wild card game in Texas at this time the Rangers have won back-to-back pennants The Orioles, they're a playoff team. They won 93 games, but you really want that home game, or at least in this case, two home games. You had to get there. It's you, Darvish, versus Joe Saunders. That's the pitching line, pitching matchup going in, and you get the ball protecting a 5-1 lead in the ninth. It's, you know, kind of flukish, but the bases are loaded, and the the time runs at the plate, and it's Murphy Mm -hmm. is the batter. Uh, What's your recollection of that? And, I mean, I I was doing post-game radio afterwards here in Baltimore, uh, but the collective Baltimore Metropolitan Area cele- sigh and then kind of celebration after the fact was just, it was something else. And then the buzz to get ready for the Yankee series.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, in that, I don't remember how I got in that situation. But I do remember, like, I was like, how did, how did this happen? Where are we right now? <laughs> uh, kind of moment. And I'm like, um, you know, there was a couple guys that came up and we had two outs. And I'm, I'm just trying, I'm like, at the point, I'm like, there's, you know, I'm like, literally, like, I didn't care if a guy hit a ball out of the park before the base is loaded, obviously. Um, but I was like, just trying to make him put it in play, you know, because I knew I had such a good, solid defense, you know, up the middle behind me, um, that if they put the ball in play, I mean, there's high percentages, this game's over. And I think somebody, somebody extended it with a, with a single or something like that. And I'm like, you know what, it's, you know, we've gone too far for this to turn sideways on us, you know, and I just felt like we had the momentum. I felt like we actually had the momentum going into the series anyway, because I distinctly remember going out onto the stadium and we were doing our warmups and stuff and just watching the body language of the, the Rangers collectively, it seemed like they, they did not want to be there. And I found that, I found that to be shocking, you know, for, you know, they had been there and I th- I felt they might've, they, they assumed that that wild card game was a chore, you know, for them, like, Oh, we got to do this. We got to play them. And, and then we can start the playoffs for us. We were like, this is, this is our chance to get in the playoffs and show that, you know, things weren't a fluke and so on and so forth. And, um, so I think just the collective feeling before the game, I, I was confident going in. I, was, I wasn't going to say anything, obviously, but me personally, I think us and as a group, I, f- I think we all felt confident going into that game, whether it was Joe Saunders or whoever pitching. And Joe, don't, don't sleep on Joe Saunders. He pitched some really big games for us um, uh, that, that season when we got him. And he was a great teammate, um, good clubhouse presence, um, and great for that organization. Kind of going back to the, the game
2: to win, um, was there any added, you know, significance to it? I mean, you had to win the game, obviously, going to New York. But did it mean anything more that you guys were able to beat Andy Pettit, who historically will, will probably go down as one of the greatest postseason pitchers ever?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, I just remember every game was a dogfight. I mean, I, I feel like every game was like one or two-run game. I mean... I feel like every game was two to two or one to one at, at but like the whole game. So, um, I, I don't, I didn't remember who started the game for either team. Um, I just, I, I remember game five that we just got, we just got steamrolled by CC and we never could get anything going against them. That's what I remember most about the series collectively, what stood out. Um, like we literally couldn't do a thing against him for some reason. Um, we just didn't have like one moment where we got that big hit or anything. It seemed like everything was kind of like a, like, you know, scratch and claw to get everything you had to get. Um, But, uh, you know, I mean, their, their team was stacked. I mean, there's no way to, (laughs) to sugarcoat it. I mean, they, they have, they had a hall of famer quality player at almost every position or coming off the bench. Um, You know, how many teams had Raul Banya's coming off the bench when they sit Alex Rodriguez? You know, one pitch I want back that kind of flattened out on me and it ends up in the right field you know stands in Yankee Stadium. So it's like, um, you know, there's certain things that just, you know, you you recall easier than others. Some are more painful, some are more enjoyable. But uh, um, I, I think the biggest thing going back, like you said, at, at Game Two. The biggest thing was we had to win. One, we had to win one for our home fans. And two, we had to win – we had to at least even the series going back to New York. And I think we played well in New York. It wasn't – It wasn't. we weren't really shocked by um, the big city or anything like that. Um, but we had, as a series, like winning game two was a, was a must win for sure.
1: We talked about that 2012 team earlier. And, again, there were so many kind of ghosts from the Orioles of the 14 prior seasons – to get over that hump and actually start believing the team was a contending ball club. You know, I always talk about the um, series against the Yankees in September. I mean, everyone kind of woke up it's labor day and damn, we're in this thing kind of feeling like the whole city kind of got that at the same time. When did the players start thinking, you guys have this huge July and September, July through September, uh, but you know, competitive in April and May, but people are looking at the roster, the one, what the one run wins. Is it really making sense? When did you guys start believing it? I mean,
3: I think we went into the season thinking we were much better than the previous years that we had. Um, to say that we were playoff contenders in April, that's hard to say. May, not so much. But I think, you know, all-star break time, you know, you've already played a little bit over half the season. And we faced everybody in our division. We know what we're facing. We kind of have an idea what we have as a as a team. And then you're hoping that, You know, with the trade deadline coming up, that things kind of get settled a little bit more. So there's kind of like the from the from the All-Star break to the trade deadline, things can kind of go one way or the other. You can, you know, teams can try to bring in guys that you know, and it offsets the balance, or the the trades that come in or happen help us out. And I think, you know, they brought in the right pieces, the right character pieces. They might not have been the most flashy guys that they're bringing in but they the the guys that did come in and and ended up helping us out were instrumental um and gave us that little boost because i mean that is the fight from july and august i mean those are those are the make or break parts of the season um you know and then i think probably the team as a group you know we thought you know we were good enough to be in the playoffs uh around the all-star break but then as the trades happened um trade deadline passed and we kind of see what we have in this established roster and see how we're still competitive um I think that's where we're really like all right let's do this thing you know I think you guys figured you could make a jump after you know
2: you have obviously some talented guys in in 2011 it just didn't end up working out very well but as you go into 2012 um did you kind of see yourself as, I mean, how much better did you think you were going to be from 11 into 12? Because, I mean, did did you feel like it was possible that you could put the inverse record up uh,
3: from, you know, what it was the previous year? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't really think of it that way. I just think of it more of, uh, you know, I, I always approached every season of trying to just win as many games as we can. Um, whether, whether you're a playoff team. I mean, some, you know, there's some seasons and some teams where you win 85 games, you're a playoff team, you know? Um, And other seasons, if you win 90 games, you don't make the cut, you know? So it's, we knew that it's actually funny that I'm, I'm remembering this, but I do remember in spring training that year, I walked into one of the coaches offices and on the board is the entire american league east and positions and i'm like what is this and i think it was buck walks in and we're talking and he said we need to figure out how we're going to beat that's that's the that's who we have to beat he's like we don't need to worry about beating you know teams in the central and the west we need to worry about the teams in our division so we need to know how we're going to match up against these teams. So he had it from the get-go, like the only way to the playoffs is through our own division. you know We have to be competitive in our division. We can't just sneak in you know and try to pick up wins against other other teams and other divisions. So um the focus was focusing on how you're going to beat the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Rays, Toronto. I mean, you know there, theres there were good they were all good teams um in different parts of the season so um if you have a winning record against those teams you're gonna you're gonna find yourself in the right spot
1: jim you play for a few different skippers before buck uh, to say the least but even going back to when you debuted in 06 and 7 uh with the orioles what was the buck factor as you see it he gets there in august of 2010 for a really bad team uh that already had a couple of managers that season and then you know it doesn't. It looks like it's happening overnight with how you guys finished 2010, but 2011 is still a bad season as far as the record goes. What was the Buck factor I mean, in your mind, and how did it change? It seemed like guys, you know, kind of reached their abilities uh, with Buck and as the manager.
3: Um, I think uh, there's a couple of things that go into it. I think one thing, one thing when Buck came in, I think the the biggest change was. Just a cultural shift in, in, in everything of how things were done. Um, if it made sense, we do it. If it doesn't make sense, why are we doing it? I think there was a lot of um, extra stuff that was kind of trimmed. And I think what what set Buck apart um, from other other managers, I think he he was a, a really good evaluator of talent, but he wasn't he wasn't just evaluating the major league roster. I mean, this guy knew knew about guys in the Dominican Summer League. I mean, I'm sure there were times in your office where he would mention some random guy in like the Dominican Summer League or Bluefield, West Virginia, and you're like, "What? How does he know who this?" I mean, he would go he would pour through game reports throughout the organization. So, in the time that he was there, he wasn't just like worrying about the major league roster. He was trying to figure out, you know, and and evaluating talent even at the lower levels that were. Because the whole minor leagues, the whole purpose of the minor leagues is to create a quality major league team. It's not about winning minor league titles. It's about being a competitive major league organization and winning major league ballgames. And I think, uh, you know, I I, I also I remember hearing from some of the coaches where he would have he had a meeting at one point where he told, you know, like the A ball and double A coaches like, listen, there is going to be a player from your team this year that's going to help us in the big leagues and or next year. And he's like, you know, this is all part of the organization. So I think getting everybody kind of getting on the same idea, like, all right, like we're all moving in that same direction. We're all, um, helping out the major league club. Um, I think it, it just simplified things, you know, and let guys play. Um, and I think he did a good job of uh, communicating with, you know, some guys might have a different uh, opinion, but I thought he did a good job of communicating. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I thought he brought out the best in the majority of the guys when they were there.
2: Go to September twenty first of that year when you you passed Randy Myers for the all time uh, single season saves record. What what did that mean to you?
3: You know, um, honestly, I, the those kind of. Um, things that happen where, you know, i I was kind of singled out. I I'd really never put too much stock in them. Um, looking back on it, it's obviously an outstanding achievement that I was able to, um, to do, um, you know, looking back at things, but in the moment I was never, never one to think about, Oh, I need to have this or that for my, you know, for my personal, um, uh, accomplishments and I always thought of all the saves and all the all those the one like the one run record things you want to talk about that that's the kind of things like you know that was our bullpen as a group that was a more reflection of them than it was of me I felt and so I took more pride in that and our obviously our records um, in that kind of stuff and just as a team uh, getting to the playoffs like those those are the things that um, I enjoyed more over the, any sort of personal achievement.
1: Jim, tell me about the life of a closer. Obviously, it's one of the more fascinating things to look at in sports. I don't know. I mean, you're a football fan. Uh, you, you follow other sports. Is it a hockey goalie? Is it a, you know, is, is it a place kicker? I mean, tell me about that world. It's kind of an isolation. You're beloved when you do well. Uh, but even if you have a fantastic season, Fifty plus saves. You might you might blow one or two. I mean, and complain to the media about even the term "blue." Like he didn't like that even terminology because you never really had it ever. There weren't twenty seven outs on the other side. Uh, but the mindset. And you were a very accomplished reliever before you even got to the ninth inning. Tell me about that jump and what the mindset needs to be.
3: Um. Well, if you want to if you want to put it in perspective, it's it, not necessarily a closer, but any reliever is always. I always say it's an offensive lineman and football is the best way to put it. And it's like <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody nobody really knows an offensive lineman until they blow blow a coverage and your yeah. quarterbacks, you know, getting carted off the field. Um you know that that's kind of, you know, it. Um I was never like the flashy or anything like that. Um actually Darren <laughs> it's funny, Darren was giving me stuff over the A-Rod strikeout in the playoffs because they actually got a picture of me like somewhat celebrating. They put it on a baseball card. He's like the one time you do something, they actually capture it, you know, no, but, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, you, you just kind of live in your own world. I mean, it's, uh, the guys, the guys that are in there they know what they're, they, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. Um, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not, like, flashy or anything like that. You know, we don't really – we're, like, looked at as, like, the failed starters. Um, And it's funny, you know, like, people think about – people, you know, talk about the 2012 season and all that, you know, and the saves. I think I pitched better in 2011 and 2008 as me personally. Um, I think I had better seasons those years than I did in 2012. And so – you know, the stats, stats only tell, like, a part of the story, um, you know, and there's different different phases for each. And, um, yeah, I, I don't really have too much. I, it's hard to kind of explain um, unless you've kind of been in organized baseball. I don't know how to really explain it any other way. When you were getting started in the
2: big leagues, who were a couple of relievers that – Helped you out and, and gave you some advice and, and kind of get you got got you in the right mindset to be able to to perform on on some of the some of the biggest stages out there.
3: Um, well, I was never nervous pitching in the stadium, I, and that's a weird thing to say. I, I never, even in my debut, like I think my first pitch, I was a little nervous um, as a starter, but. <laughs> um, other than that, I'd never, I was never nervous. I was never intimidated over who was at the plate. Um, but guys, guys that really helped me in my career, um, the first full season I had there were guys that didn't no, none of them pitched anything close to what I pitched like. And, you know, Chad Bradford, who was a submarine pitcher. All right. And then we had Jamie Walker left-handed slinger and then George Sherrill. I mean, those three guys, um, who had been in the big leagues for quite some time combined um, all took me and kind of explained to me like how, how to prepare um, and to pitch every single day. I mean, cause that's what you have to do as a reliever. You basically are an everyday player that might not be used every day. And so, um, you know, they did a good job of helping me understand that because that was my first time ever pitching out of the bullpen exclusively. Um, you know, up until that point, I'd always been a starter. And so, you know, having those guys around and to teach me and then and then I've been able to help certain guys in bullpens that I've been on for the years after. And hopefully, you know, I was able to make an influence or impact on um, other guys that came after me.
1: Jim, you had a pretty lengthy minor league career. I know you were drafted, you know, pretty young. You don't see that much anymore. I mean, you hit every level. Uh, I think a couple of seasons in Bluefield, you mentioned – that but uh, mostly as a starter but tell me about your experience uh, kind of going through a system playing in towns like Bluefield I mean this is stuff we may not see in the future Uh, going to Salisbury Maryland going to Bowie and Frederick Maryland tell me about those experiences looking back almost 20 years later
3: yeah Uh, well you know it's it's interesting because I was one of and I don't know how many guys can say that they made it to the big leagues after playing three years of rookie ball so (laughs) that's that's probably not gonna happen anymore um yeah i mean i was drafted out of high school i I graduated um i was 17 so i was fairly young um and then i they shipped me straight down to florida to play in the gulf coast i played you know i played a couple hot months here but when i first got here they they were really um restrictive on my pitching And how how long I could go and I was really frustrated by that because um, I wanted to to start moving up the ladder and I felt like I had like uh, um, uh, training wheels on the whole time so they were doing that I think because they were you know I was a northern kid so I didn't wasn't used to pitching you know longer in the season or so on and so forth and so I think that's what the idea was and why they brought me along so slow. Um, and I was still growing, which was kind of weird. Um, you know, being younger, I wasn't even my full height at that time. I, I grew another inch and a half after I was drafted and filled out added about 45 pounds after that. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, then going, you know, and then all the extended spring trainings. I mean, there's lots of hot months in Florida that I spent. Um, and then Bluefield, West Virginia twice, unfortunately, which I was frustrated with that one because the second time I went was the first year that they had Aberdeen and I really wanted to go to Aberdeen. You know, that would have been a great place to play. Um, but they, they wanted to have a bunch of college kids and for some reason I didn't make the cut. Um, and then after that, then, then I, then I started kind of progressed at the rate that I wanted to It was basically one spot. And then move up, and then one spot move up, and then um, to Double A, and then you know, cup of coffee, or, you know, after Triple A, and then and then make the team. Basically, the next year, three years in in rookie ball, <laughs> even if you
2: were a fifth round pick out of out of high school, that has to be extremely frustrating. Was there ever a time along that challenging stretch where you're like? Maybe this isn't going to work out and, and what am I doing here?
3: Oh, uh, yeah, but absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, that second that second time going to Bluefield was pretty tough for me. Um, you know, I, I think I had many long conversations with myself about am I really doing this and, or what are my other options. And um, You know, at that point, you know, I, I think I had a couple more conversations um, with family members um, my parents, uh, and just try to figure out. And, and I think, I I think ultimately I decided was I was going to go to spring training, um, the next year. Um, and if I didn't, um, if I didn't move anywhere, then, you know, to where I wanted to be and be productive, then that was probably going to be my last season. Yeah. Amazing. 13
1: big league seasons after all of that. We'll end on this, Jim. Uh, tell us about the development of your pitch, your sinker, that power sinker, uh, and, and how you learned it and how you executed
3: it. Um, well, it actually – I never really was a two-seam pitcher or a sinker pitcher in the minor leagues. I was predominantly a four-seamer. Um, and it was about the time um, – it was towards the end of the time I spent in AAA – um, I was talking with, uh, a couple guys and I was asking them basically how often they throw their sinker and their four seamer. And these are guys that have been like up and down and, you know, some guys splits were different. Some guys like I was, you know, might've been an 80% four seam, 20%, uh, two seam when they throw their fastball. And at the time I was about 80, 20 four, you know, I would throw about 80% four seamers. And I thought at the time, um, you know, I was getting more ground balls on the two-seamer. And uh, so I figured I'd go to, I'd go to um, 50-50 and see how that went. And I think uh, I went out to the fall league and I started throwing more of those sinkers. And even though it was Arizona, I was getting good results. And so that next, that next spring training um, in Big League Camp, I just pretty much committed to flipping it around the, entire, the other way and going 80-20 in, in favor of throwing two-seamers. And uh, we were throwing some – we were throwing, like, interleague games, you know, like the practice, you know, games before. And uh, uh, Chris Chris Gomez? Yep. Infielder. Been around a while. And he was on the team the year before. And I think he had made a comment to Brian Roberts at the time. He was like, who is this guy throwing these bowling balls, is what he said. To Brian, and Brian was kind of filling me in, and I was like, Well, that's pretty much concrete evidence that what I was doing was doing, and I was doing it right. So I didn't really try to manipulate, I just threw it. I just grabbed it a certain way and just threw it. I didn't try to make it do anything um, different. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, is well, not funny, but you know, it, it's tough because as the years changed, things kind of changed with feel and. Um, I felt like the ball changed a little bit. Um, so it made it harder for me to throw it. Um, so it wasn't as effective later on in my career, but I don't know if it was, you know, just getting older or whatever. But, you know, I still threw it more often than not. But, you know, as you now see, a lot of guys in the game now are throwing four-seam backspin balls top of the zone. So it's it's interesting how the game has evolved, um, you know, there was a stretch there where it was, you know, ground balls and sinkers. And then now it's like four seam power, big curve balls and stuff like that.
1: Well, Jim, we really appreciate it. Um, and, and thank you so much for joining us. We hope you and your family are well uh, during this and hopefully we'll see you at a, at a ballpark at some point soon.
3: Yeah. At some point, I know my son's been dying to watch real baseball. He's, he's getting bored of uh, watching the uh, 1997 uh, world series and replays and stuff. So yeah, um, But, yeah, he's also bummed that their Little League season got canceled. But I'm sure that's a lot of kids and a lot of families. But, yeah, we'll see what happens. Hopefully things get worked out. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see sports again. I think a lot of people do. Yeah, amen to that. Jim, thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, thanks.
2: Year-round, the Orioles focus their philanthropic efforts on two distinct pillars, strengthening our community and empowering our youth. In times of crisis, the Orioles aim to bring visibility to resources our community members need the most. The Orioles have partners with world-class organizations like the Maryland Food Bank, MedStar Health, and the Salvation Army to help those in need. For more information and to learn how you can help, visit orioles.com slash community resources.
1: Yeah, and Jeff, uh, it's funny. Jim Johnson had really thoughtful answers to everything we asked. I think he had a hard time coming up with the words about being a big league closer. And I find that so interesting. He had a great analogy about the offensive line. I absolutely love that. You know, I think you'd, I'd almost equate it more to a goalie or to uh, perhaps a place kicker. The, the, that's the, what I was thinking, the isolation of it all. The, you know, let's face it. When he came on for game two of that ALDS, I know for a fact, Half the stadium was saying things I cannot say on this podcast right now. They just saw him, you know, struggle the night before. And and I'm of the uh, group that believes we throw around words like choke far too easily into our society. When we talk about sports and the sports vernacular, uh, sometimes you get beat. How about that other guy is pretty good you're trying to get out. And there's also luck and variables in play in every situation. And when you're talking about a one inning scenario uh, where you know you're going to get the best effort, of the opposing club, and it's the only time in the game where the ballpark is completely lit and on its feet. A, any bunt play, any steal play, any hit and run play—you know, pay, batters can be more patient. It, it's all possible in that ninth inning, particularly defending a one or two unlead. It is a different mindset, and we've seen some great relievers fail in that role. Um, and and it's it's just a different mindset. It, it really comes down to what Jim described after Game One of putting it behind you the moment you leave the ballpark, but. How many of us in our, in our lives and our jobs can say we're, we're able to do that? I, I tell you, when I've had a tough day, tough radio show, tough time calling a game, uh, I, I can't put it out of my mind that quickly. Neither could
2: I. I mean, I would go back and, and watch it and beat myself agonized. up. Yeah, agonize, beat myself up for a couple of days, especially if you, you don't put a good performance together. I mean, I might have individual calls that I'll go back and like, oh, did I really do that? But – I think what made Mariano Rivera such a great closer, and I read this someplace, was that he would put the blown saves behind him when he would leave the mound, which is really hard to do. And and Johnson talking about how, okay, you leave the clubhouse, then you sort of have to put it in the past. That's an unbelievably hard thing to do. And if the, the role of closer isn't hard enough, think about how many people say, all right, we'll put you into the closer's role and we'll see how it goes. And then it doesn't work out. I mean, we've seen countless times, not only in Orioles history but in other places too, where you try somebody out, you put them in a role, they don't succeed, and then boom, they're they're vanished someplace else. And then you bring someone else in. It is a tireless job, which is extremely stressful, where you have to manage adrenaline and understand what your adrenaline is. I mean, maybe that's the reason why you see closers with some of the most bizarre routines nope. out there. Because they have to figure out how to be in control when they when they go in there. That's a lot of the reason where I kind of equate the closer's role to that of a of a place click, place kicker. You need to get three outs in a lot of cases. Sometimes it's a little bit more, and you're expected to come through. And if you don't come through, then you're going to hear about it. And then if you have the same experience happen the next day or a few times a week, or whatever, then then suddenly it, everyone starts talking about. All right, are we going to replace our closer? What are we going to do? And it's it's a thankless job if, if you're a closer. It can be a very uh, high paying one if, if you're if you're one of the, the good ones out there. And uh, but any time where you can put together 50, 51 saves in back to back years, that's certainly saying something about you as a pitcher and as someone who's able to manage adrenaline and stress and Walk into those situations sometimes with the bases loaded and know that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, we've got a one run lead, and I have to figure out a way to get us out of this.
1: There's no question when you feel as a fan or onlooker, or I'm sure as a player, that you had a lead in the ninth inning and you don't win that game, it feels like you let one get away, and it's probably unfair because let's face it, I mean, even Zach Britton gave up a few runs in his 2016 season not many, but he gave up a few. I mean, you're going to give some up. It's a game of failure. It sounds cliche, but it is. And um, even the greatest you know, hitters of all time, obviously the old saying is, fail seven out of every ten times up. And the same in a different sense can be true for for pitchers. So it's a tough job. You know, you, you think about the greatest closer years in Orioles history. Johnson's had a few of them. Uh, Zach Britton's had a few of them, obviously. I think people look at his pure numbers of 16 and say that's the best year maybe of all time for any closer. And then Randy Myers in 1997. I think he went 45 of 46 with a really slim ERA, uh, and he only blew one. I think Jason Giambi had a home run off him at Camden Yards one day. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's it. That's the group. And, and Greg Olsen had a few of them, no doubt. Uh, but uh, And there are other guys along the way, because if you have a close, you get those opportunities. The saves number is going to pop up. But um, those are the ones that probably stand out in Orioles history. But great talking to Jim. Always thought he was a really cerebral guy. I think really well-respected by his teammates. And I think when you go out there and the meaningful games they played and someone who kind of saw the losing seasons through to the other side, uh, he gets a lot of respect from a lot of people. So a lot of fun today, Jeff. Uh, we're going to go back to another division series coming up. We're going to talk uh, some Orioles playoff baseball back in 1996, playoff baseball at Camden Yards for the first time ever. Uh, some fond memories of these games. We'll get into that coming up in our next episode. So until then, Jeff, uh, stay healthy, stay well, and we'll talk soon. All right, partners, stay safe. And this has been another edition of Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Light.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it.